Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast. Trent Kling with Leighton Kling alongside. We've got monster earnings from Monster Energy, a litany of new limited time offers for Lent in the QSR industry. And we'll also talk about the expansion in the Midwest of a value-priced steak chain. But first, we begin with Shake Shack, and I apologize to our listeners, as you might be able to tell, my voice is not at its usual timbre because it's been lost somewhat, so Leighton's going to carry this episode, and he's going to start off by telling us about Shake Shack making profit expectations, but missing on same-store sales forecasts, which in turn decreased their stock price on the market after their earnings call. I also have to apologize to our listeners because they probably want to hear me a little bit less than they do you overall and the fact that we're a little late on this food focus because of Trent's illness. But we do begin with Shake Shack as they reported their fourth quarter earnings last Wednesday. Adjusted net income for the company came in at $3.3 million. Again, this is adjusted Earnings per share came in at $0.09, which matched analyst consensus estimates. Adjusted net income was $2.9 million during the same quarter last year. Total revenue for the company came in at $73.3 million, higher than the forecast from analysts of 70.68, so a beat on top line revenue. A very good sign for Shake Shack. More locations, however, was the main driver and not same store sales. And this is going to be a theme throughout Shake Shack and how they're going to be growing out their business because they really haven't been able to bring in as high of foot traffic as they had hoped. 43% growth in sales year over year. Again, the main driver there being from additional locations. Full year revenue, because this was the fourth quarter earnings, they did release their full fiscal year results as well. Full year revenue increased to $268.5 million, a lot higher than it was this time last year. Same shack sales, as they call them, were positive, albeit slightly. 1.6% for that positive increase, despite projections of around 2.9% from analysts, so about half as much growth overall that analysts were expecting. The company was hoping also for higher same-store sales. So they missed on company guidance and on analyst guidance as well. Same shack sales last year were 11%, so the company was really pointing to this in their earnings call. If you were reading the transcript or listening to them live. They were talking about a lot of things having to do with coming against hard comps, saying that double-digit comps from last year were going to be a burden this year and through the rest of the quarter. So I think there's going to be a lot of tough comps as we look ahead through first quarter and second quarter in 2017. Average weekly sales, to put this in perspective, for the domestic company-owned operated shacks, which are primarily in the United States, was 90000 for the fourth quarter in 2016. And this compares to only 89000 for the fourth quarter of last year. So again, to put this all in perspective, to bring this together, they're seeing only an average of $1,000 more revenue per location in their U.S. stores. So that's a very minimal increase. And they say that this was actually due to increased menu prices. Again, not favorable shifts in traffic trends. So these menu prices are going to be a common theme throughout the 
the QSR industry as you see increased labor inputs. Those tend to have a, a horrible effect as far as the pricing is concerned. We talked about Texas Roadhouse a couple weeks ago. Looking at areas that are seeing increased wages and increasing those menu prices about 1% to 2%. So overall, we see same-store sales coming in soft, but they beat on revenue. Again, we talked about that opening. They opened a lot more locations, more than they had actually anticipated, and they even increased guidance throughout the rest of the year as far as the amount of locations overall that they plan on opening. Opening 10 to 15% more on an annualized basis than their previous guidance had called for. I talk about these variable costs such as wages really eating in Shake Shack's margins, Trent, and that's really a theme here throughout this earnings call as well. Absolutely. Not only the high wages, but also they said when they pour resources into opening these new stores, they need more labor hours in the beginning because you need to train staff, you need to train assistant managers and managers. If you're lucky, you get to send managers over from a second store, but then that leaves that first store a little bit soft in terms of management and therefore you need to hire from within and so it's just a matter of not only staffing but getting everyone trained and on the same page we've been somewhat bearish when it comes to shake shack as a whole not because we don't like the concept not because we don't like the food but we've talked about how their growth has been so much slower than the likes of five guys and also smashburger who are two businesses that we think generally speak of as being further along in this industry, in this particular segment, than is Shake Shack. So it's encouraging to see that Shake Shack is starting to really pour resources into opening these new stores. However, you might argue that it's too little too late, that a lot of market share has already been snapped up by those other stores. And one of the things that we weren't bearish on when it came to Shake Shack was their same store sales. So this is a big red light and siren if you're looking at Shake Shack from the outside in, noting that their same store sales are increasing only slightly, and that is due primarily to increase in menu costs. They're not seeing increase in traffic, which is something we didn't have to worry about in the past for Shake Shack. So not only do you have to worry about opening up these new locations and having to compete head-to-head with many Five Guys and Smashburger restaurants, as well as a litany of other competitors in this particular space, but also now you have to worry about declining foot traffic in the stores you already have open, and so they've got to fight against these trends to keep from becoming the next Pi 5. They also discussed tech in this earnings release. Randy Goretti, their CEO, made it clear that the restaurant and retail landscape as a whole will continue to favor technology, will continue to evolve, and be very different for generations to come. So Shake Shack is trying to get out in front of this. They're looking for ways to make pre-ordering easier for their customers, and this is something we've seen other chains that have seen increases in same-store sales recently, like Chipotle and Panera. They've spent a ton of money on it. We often talk about Five Guys being one of the first mobile ordering platforms in this particular space. So it's a good thing for Shake Shack to be pouring money into this. But again, that's going to hurt your margins over the next several quarters. And that's going to hurt your bottom line. And that's something investors have to expect. Maybe a little short-term pain for long-term game for the franchise. Absolutely. And this really was the response by the CEO to say, this is our strategy going forward as far as bringing in more customers. You mentioned the declining foot traffic. I mentioned the declining foot traffic as well. And this has been a lot of other QSR's answer to bringing in customers is a lot of people don't want to wait in line. A lot of people don't want to eat in the actual restaurant. So 
the only way to bring those customers in and not have them experience long wait times or helping them with the desire to not sit in the restaurant is to have these pre-ordering platforms. And again, that costs a lot of money, as you alluded to, but this is something that Chipotle had said in their last quarter that they're really going to pour a lot of money into. And you look at the launch of what they call the Shake app. The nationwide launch happened in January of this year. They said they were quiet about they were quiet about the rollout in order to work out any issues. We all know that the different iterations, the first iterations of these mobile apps are a little bit complicated, a little bit problematic, if you will. And they didn't give a lot of time for the beta version either. So they were able to work out some kinks in about four weeks or so. And in February alone, they said they had 200,000 downloads of the Shake app. And so far, they give out one free burger per download. About 90,000 of those were redeemed. So 90,000 free burgers, that is also going to hurt their margins. So it's not only the technology investment itself, the R&D that you have to put behind some of these things, but the fact that they're actually promoting it in such a way that they have to give away free food in order to get people coming in. However, they looked at the rate in which people are coming back from their first purchase. They said 25% of app users have already come back at least once. So we're talking about 25% of people have come back in a very short amount of time. We're talking between one and two months time overall. And they said that these burgers were actually 6% of their total orders in the US. So you talk about hurting margins, Trent, this really will eat into their bottom line. If you're talking about more than 5% of sales coming in terms of free burgers. These 90,000 free burgers represented over 5% of total orders in the United States. Those company-owned locations. Back to the openings, 30 net system-wide shack openings, including 20 domestic-operated company shacks and 10 net licensed shacks. We talk a lot about their international presence. It keeps expanding almost as much as the U.S. presence, but they don't do it by owning those locations. They license those locations out. They also license out any deals they have with local arenas. Any big sports arenas in larger markets here in the United States, those are licensed as well. What comes to mind there is the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas that actually has a very nice arena now, over 20,000-seat arena, and the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia. They are both licensed now. About 100 locations in total for the company. This includes those international locations that I talked about. But we also talked about the outlook, Trent, a soft 2017 outlook. This is not in regards to the openings, however, but it is in regards to the revenue guidance and those same shack sales that we had talked about for the quarter. That is correct. And what's interesting to note is they are raising their total revenue guidance because of the new stores that they're opening. But they're keeping Same Shack sales projections between 2 and 3%. And they say this includes, inside the company at least, these are their own expectations, 1.5 to 2% of menu price increase benefits taken in early January and then nominal traffic and mix increases. But what I think is most alarming about this number is that you're not seeing the shacks that were open one or two years ago drive that huge same store sales numbers like you were seeing the shacks that opened up three to four years ago drive same store sales numbers over the past few years so i think we both agree that the newness of the franchise has worn off but it's somewhat scary to me to watch these businesses that have been open for at least a year watch these restaurants that have been open for at least a year not driving more nominal increases in same store sales than what management does expect them to do 
They are, as Leighton referenced, increasing their development plan guidance overall. They're looking at between 22 and 23 new domestic company operated stores with annual sales volumes average of at least 3.2 million and shack level operating profit margins of at least 21%. So that is still very strong for the company. But again, you're not seeing that second year sales bump like you see from a lot of restaurants that are new and emerging. They're still seeing their overall operating profit margin between 26.5 and 27.5%. It'll be interesting to see if this takes a hit over time because of expenditures that we mentioned not only in staffing, but also in technology and free food for customers. We transition from a QSR that's losing a little bit of freshness to an energy drink producer that has been outperforming expectations for several quarters now and several years overall. Monster Beverage also reported their fourth quarter earnings last Wednesday and announced a massive share buyback program. As a result, shares of the company popped over 12% this last Tuesday on the news. Monster reported fourth quarter earnings of 30 cents per share in line with estimates on revenue of 753.8 million dollars. The revenue side was the beat for the company as they really did a good job at beating expectations by over $31 million. So therefore, consensus expectations for the company's revenue was $722.2 million, 16.8% above where they were for the fourth quarter of 2015. So we talk about a company that's growing a lot year over year, quarter over quarter. They are doing that gross sales for Monster Energy Drinks. This is the unit volume for which they sell their energy drink platform. This segment for the fourth quarter of 2016 increased 14.3% from $677 million to $774 million for the company for the fourth quarter. Gross profit as a percentage of net sales for the fourth quarter was 66.1% as compared to 62.5%. So not only is the company growing top line growth, they're actually doing it in a more profitable way. So this is really good for shareholders and that the return on their money is actually greater than it was this time last year distribution costs is one of the issues that they're looking at as far as helping the margins out. And distribution is an interesting thing. As a percent of sales, it was 3.2% in 2016 and 2015. Distribution, one of the reasons it's listed in here is because the partnership with Coca-Cola, they had actually started this partnership and announced it back in fall of 2014, and they closed on the deal in the summer of 2015. The reason this is so important is because even though it costs the company money to distribute through Coca-Cola distributorships, it really does them favors as far as getting the company in different markets. We're talking about a lot of international penetration, something you wouldn't see from a very large energy drink corporation that was actually still relatively new back in 2014 and 2015. They had some good brand awareness, but as far as getting it distributed to a lot of smaller markets overseas, it was tough. But now Coca-Cola comes to the rescue and you see that reflective in their gross sales. So their overall unit counts are higher because of this partnership. And upon the news back in 2015 of them actually closing this deal with Coca-Cola, I remember the stock surging. And this is why, because a lot of shareholders are looking at the long-term perspective of Monster Energy Drink overall, and they're seeing this as a very good thing as far as seeing a positive trajectory for top-line sales. Overall, Monster Beverage transferred its non-energy portfolio as well. So their Hanson Natural Sodas and Peace Tea 
to Coca-Cola. So this allowed them to focus on the energy drink market. And this is a market trend that actually keeps on growing despite a lot of analysts saying that they expect a stagnation in growth in 2017. This is kind of opposite of what we talk about with soda sales. You'll recall if you're a regular listener to the program that soda sales are on a steady decline. Bottled water sales and flavored water sales are on the incline. And it's interesting to me that we're sitting here talking about Monster Energy Drink having this great quarter because of an increase overall in total sales in their energy drink line because it's something that you equate oftentimes with sodas or things that might be a little bit unhealthy. And we'll talk about continued sales growth in the category a little bit later on. But when you're Monster, you're trying to stand out against not only other energy drink companies. Right now, Red Bull is the market share leader. They have, depending on the year, about 40 to 45 percent of the market share. Monster right behind that at 35 to 40 percent of the market share. But also Rockstar, NOS, Amp, Full throttle, the list goes on there, but you're also competing against energy shots, which are now everywhere. Not only is 5-Hour Energy, of course, the leader in the space, but you also have generic brands and also off-brands or lesser-known brands there in energy shots. In addition, in a way, you're also competing against the coffee industry. And Monster's done a really great thing in diversifying their Monster Java line, which was successful from the time it was released in the late portion of the last decade all the way to now. But they continue to innovate in terms of different flavors, and they stand out in multiple facets. They stand out on flavor and stand out on price against Starbucks' similar coffee-flavored energy drinks that they are producing. So kudos to Monster for continuing to grow things out. They're also looking for more vertical integration. Layton talked about their deal with Coca-Cola. They also reached a deal with American Fruits and Flavors to acquire the business back on April 1st of 2016. And now we're starting to see the benefit in Monster's earnings releases. Because of this vertical integration, they claimed they were able to achieve raw material cost savings of $22 million, which is a quite a substantial number in the 2016 fourth quarter. So you look at how vertical integration is benefiting Monster, these deals with outside companies like Coca-Cola also benefiting Monster. And we're in a situation here, Leighton, where the energy drink business is actually on the grow in comparison to the soda business, which is shrinking rather rapidly in the United States. So, Leighton, what are some of the reasons the energy drink sector is growing while the soda sector as a whole is shrinking? Yeah, so first, if we talk about some of the fun industry facts, the total U.S. energy drink sales for all the brands, so we're talking about the Monster, the Red Bulls, the NOS that you mentioned, all the brands came in at nearly $12.5 billion last year. That's billion with a B. This represents over 182 million gallons of energy drinks consumed. So when we were doing the research for this story, this really surprised me. This took me back because you're comparing energy drink sales to that of soda sales, bottled water sales, and they are neck and neck now officially. This is a lot of gallons of energy drink that are being sold inside the United States. And what's fascinating, Trent, is as you mentioned, the industry is still growing. And so back to the reasons why there are still some growth factors here. Energy 
Shots has actually reemerged as a growth driver for Monster and a lot of other energy drink companies. We talk about Five Hour Energy on previous podcasts, really trying to differentiate with flavor offerings, also offering some protein infusion to try to get some people that are trying to be fitness conscious back in the fold. And then also a lot of new and varied flavor offerings from all the prominent brands. So you see a lot of advertisement with Monster Energy Drink, their partnerships with the UFC and Bellator, things of that nature, really offering them a lot of different things to work with as far as the different flavors are concerned. You talk about flavors in the energy drink industry. You can see that as an endless runway for them. There's always some new combination that they can play with and test out and to try to vary in different markets. In fact, they tried a specific flavor for Sam's Club that has actually done quite well and they're contemplating whether to spread that out through all the markets. So the infusion of natural ingredients and protein is the last thing I had alluded to the protein infusion with five hour energy, but really the natural ingredients is something that's bringing the person who is health conscious into the energy drink fold. You talk about someone who's health conscious really typically shies away from energy drinks because they have a lot of artificial flavors, a lot of artificial colors, things of that nature. But once you start producing energy drinks that say all natural or potentially organic, and they do exist, that is going to draw some attention from those health conscious consumers and potentially get some buying power from the likes of Whole Foods or natural grocers. So there's a lot of new ways in this market to drive growth. And what's interesting is right now, the market's growing at about six to seven percent. So this is quite dramatic. And with Monster in particular, because this story is about Monster, we talk about economies of scale a lot and the partnerships they've brought about with the distribution from Coca-Cola. And this economies of scale really plays into the company, but also with Monster, you have economies of scope. And from the economic perspective, economies of scope is really the ability to leverage their brand. So we talk about these new flavor offerings that they've been coming out with as of late over the last two quarters. They're able to leverage their brand awareness to get people interested in these new offerings. This is going to be a higher level of interest than you can get from a startup company that may have a similar item, something that potentially is all natural or all organic, but it's going to get a lot more recognition because of the brand name that Monster now carries. And they focused a lot on this over the years. We talk about social media. They do it excellently. So overall, they have the economy of scope and now they have the economy of scale and they have an expert focus within their industry. Industry, and to see that potentially in 2017, they could retake water as the number one selling beverage in the United States is astounding. And they're using that economy of scope in some new product launches that they're coming out with and they continue to innovate. They're not content to sit back on their laurels. They mentioned the launch of Mutant back in September 2016 and they're seeing decent sales from that, what they're calling a super soda that they released in certain markets throughout the United States, markets that compete well with Mountain Dew and that type of thing. And then you're looking into the future at some product lines that are going to hit in March or April, starting with their Hydro line, which is a non-carbonated, treated energy drink packaged in a can that's very unique, actually, to Monster. It's a 16.9-ounce can, and they're planning on launching that for the retail trade 
in about a month or so. And then also Monster Energy Ultraviolet was launched exclusively with Sam's Club recently, and it will be expanded to all channels, they say, by the end of March. They are very excited about this. They're also planning on offering Full Throttle Orange at the end of March, and they claim that they have other product releases scheduled for the rest of 2017. So this could be certainly a growth driver for the near future if you're looking at Monster as a company overall. Well, Lent started this year on March 1st, and it will run through Saturday, April 15th. With that comes the opportunity for a variety of restaurants to appeal to those looking to give up certain foods or drinks. So when it comes to food or beverages, some of the most popular items that come to mind for Lent are alcohol, red meat, chocolate, or coffee. With chocolate comes a lot of sweets as well. A lot of people say in certain studies and surveys that they've given up all candy during the time of Lent. While there is no hard and fast rule, the idea is to give up something that is of value for the 40-day period in order to focus on your spiritual or religious beliefs. Logically, those aforementioned food and drink items tend to be considered the guiltiest pleasure. So the person is giving up something that they really highly value. And so for this edition of the Food Focus, we will look at those restaurants that have been offering several alternatives and promoting them ahead of time for those that are going to be participating in Lent. That's correct. And so there's two different forms, really, that you see Lent impact the food industry or the grocery industry overall. The first is what you mentioned, Leighton, where people are giving up alcohol or red meat or or chocolate or something of that nature for the duration of Lent. Now, you don't always have to give up a food item, but it seems rather convenient. Some people even give up soda during the course of Lent. And we see that this impacts the bottom line sometimes for certain grocers and convenience stores, but not always do we see a hard and fast case. And I hearken back to an interview we had on the Retail Focus podcast about this time last year talking about pricing pressures for something like tuna, for example, which is an alternative to red meat, but also a Friday-approved food through grocery stores, talking about pricing pressures that were experienced during Lent and how consumer attitudes change surrounding the holiday. So the first way in which Lent affects a restaurant or a food retailer is in the way that Leighton mentioned. The second pertains to the Friday fasting that oftentimes goes on. We see this a lot in Catholicism and other similar religions where on Fridays fasting doesn't necessarily mean going without food, but certainly it means going without meat or specifically red meat and the idea behind it if you look into a little bit of a history behind it is that fish was seen as kind of a poor man's food so it is acceptable as our vegetables fruits that type of thing to consume on friday and so as a result you see a number of restaurants rolling out limited time offers and that's really what we're going to be looking at today above and beyond the idea of giving up something for Lent. We're going to be looking at some of these fish-related LTOs that businesses are rolling out. So we see businesses ranging from Bojangles and Church's Chicken in the QSR chicken industry to Freddy's Frozen Custard in the fast casual burger industry to Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, all offering either fish sandwiches, some sort of fish offerings, or even in certain circumstances, fish tacos. The trend has even continued to sandwich places. Subway is beginning to offer wild-caught Alaskan Pollock on their subs as an option during the course of the next 40 days or so. And then Quiznos is offering seafood subs as well, and they're actually beginning to market some of those. Now, Quiznos oftentimes will mix in seafood as LTOs anyway, regardless of Lent. 
White Castle offering a seafood crab cake slider for $1.29 in most markets. That will be available through April 16th, which is right about the time, of course, that Lent will be concluding. In this case, Lent concludes Saturday, April 15th, or midnight on Saturday, April 15th. Hardee's this year is offering a Red Hook beer-battered codfish sandwich. One of the reasons we talk about this LTO is because this actually continues Hardee's recent push towards working with InBev products. We talk about InBev the beer giant. Earlier this year, Hardee's used Budweiser branding for a beer cheeseburger and even used Anheuser-Busch employees as part of the ad campaign for that burger. So they stay in the InBev family with Red Hook, offering this Red Hook beer-battered codfish sandwich. Wendy's, meanwhile, continues to offer their panko-breaded cod filet sandwich. This is something they began to offer in the earlier portion of the decade. They're on their fifth or sixth year of offering this particular sandwich, and how they differentiate is on that panko breading. There's only one other QSR that we noted that is actually offering this panko breading. We'll get to them in a little bit. Their tartar sauce that they offer has dill mixed in, so it's dill-flavored tartar sauce. But this is interesting Oftentimes, Wendy's will do a little bit more of a push towards this sandwich, both in media and also on their investor relations side. This is the first year since they began coming out with this panko-breaded cod filet sandwich that there is actually no press release accompanying the release of the sandwich. So that is interesting to note that maybe Wendy's is busy promoting other particular products. When you go back to Wendy's Investor Day, they claimed that they wanted to win chicken. They wanted to refine customers' attitudes towards chicken. And actually, those are the most recent press releases we see from Wendy's that of making sure that customers know that their chicken is flavorful, their chicken is fantastic, not so much about these fish-related LTOs. So Wendy's is sticking to a consistent brand message regarding their chicken products even throughout this period of Lent, which is kind of unusual for them. Burger King began using that same panko breading recently, trying to piggyback off of Wendy's success with this sandwich. They have what they call a big fish sandwich, and they've offered fish sandwiches off and on, even as full-time menu items since the 70s. The name has been changed multiple times. Now it is called the big fish sandwich. It's made with Alaskan Pollock rather than cod sweet tartar sauce, and a brioche bun. And Leighton, there's going to be probably some media push about which is better, Pollock or Cod. We see so much in the media, especially from the likes of Hardy's, up-talking Cod a little bit. But it's interesting because when you look at the two types of fish, they are really quite similar. Yeah, absolutely. And for me personally, the taste is very similar. So I think that's why a lot of people draw that distinction, basically saying that really just the name is different. But Pollock is perceived as lower quality, as you had alluded to, but does have more protein per 100 grams. So Pollock has about 20 grams of protein versus the cod, which has about 17 grams of protein per that 100 grams. And it also has slightly more fat does Pollock at 0.9 grams versus the 0.3 grams that cod has. So a little interesting distinction there if you're a little health conscious as far as what fish to try out if you were to participate in Lent this season. But for me, this isn't really about the holiday or anything of that nature. It's more about the marketing of these companies and how they're really getting these different products out there. A lot of these products, as you mentioned, are limited time offerings, but a lot of these items have been on these quick service restaurants menus for quite some time. And it is interesting. This was the second story of this 
overall food focus that really caught my attention because here you have these companies who I was really not aware of all of their fish offerings that they have on their standard normalized menu throughout the year. And here I am looking at some of the offerings from Freddy's Frozen Custard, Carl's Jr., and Church's Chicken, thinking that these are standard offerings. And it quite surprised me because here you have restaurants that you think of either as a traditional burger joint or as a traditional chicken joint, but they have a lot of different offerings as far as the fish is concerned. So a lot to look forward to in there as far as the product awareness and the marketing is concerned. A lot of these quick service restaurants are also doing a very good job on social media to get the message out there. Although the one thing I should mention is that a lot lagged. A lot really didn't push their offerings until about a week or so into the month of March. So they could have probably gotten a little bit ahead of the game on that as far as that's concerned. Potentially pushing some of these fish items or these other offerings through the month of February or before. And another offering, McDonald's franchisees have placed the filet fish on their McPick 2 for just $5. So again, trying to really bolster that fish offering there from McDonald's as are a lot of other restaurants in the industry. McDonald's isn't the only one with a value price fish offering. And in fact, one of the fish we didn't talk about or one of the seafood forms we didn't talk about was shrimp. Church's Chicken is actually offering eight pieces of butterfly shrimp fried and dusted in lemon herb seasoning. In most markets, it's $3.50. You also see Del Taco out on the West Coast offering shrimp tacos and shrimp burritos. What's interesting to me is they're also offering a surf and turf burrito, which does have the red meat anyway, so that kind of undermines the whole point of offering these particular products for Lent, either because of the fast or because of going without something. El Pollo Loco, a business that we've talked about recently on the Food Focus, they're also going all in on shrimp. They're offering tacos, uh, bowls, even tostadas and wraps all with shrimp. So you're seeing this all across the board, not only with Pollock and Cod, which are your traditional QSR fish products, but in particular with shrimp. And this year, it seems like more businesses are focusing on shrimp than ever before. Well, we finish off this edition of the Food Focus podcast, at least the news portion of the Food Focus podcast, with a story about Colton's Steakhouse. This is a so-called value price steakhouse. They don't have quite the price point as more expensive steakhouses like Texas Roadhouse or Outback Steakhouse or Longhorn Steakhouse. But they see a consistent path to growth as they open two new locations in this quarter, and they're looking ahead to potentially as many as a half dozen more locations by the end of this calendar year. Leighton, why don't we start with a history for those that are perhaps unaware of the Colton Steakhouse chain? It's amazing how much Colton's has really grown currently. They have just above 30 locations currently in operation. The chain got started in Conway, Arkansas in August of 1996. So it's actually interesting because on the menu, they talk of the Wild West figure, J.T. Colton, and how he's the inspiration for the chain. Oddly enough, Colton, according to the legend, took over a steakhouse from Matt Dillon in Dodge City, which is in Kansas, before moving to Texas and running a steakhouse there. However, that steakhouse has nothing whatsoever to do with this chain here in Colton's Steakhouse. When they opened their sixth restaurant, just their sixth restaurant, they did announce an interesting deal that happened with hand-cut steaks. It's not clear whether they're under the partnership with hand-cut steaks or there was a merger or a takeover between the two. But overall, you can see that they've really focused on quality and expanding their brand image throughout the South End Midwest. 
Currently, they're in Arkansas, Kansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, Tennessee, and soon to be Illinois. So overall, you look at just the past year, they've opened a half dozen. So on a percentage basis, over a 10 to 15% growth rate for Colton Steakhouse. This is a steakhouse that, again, really prides themselves on having a localized feel in these different markets. So it's interesting that they have chosen now to be the time of expansion. When you're looking at other restaurants, these bigger Longhorn Steakhouse corporate restaurants, restaurants and the Texas roadhouses of the world that have really seen a amount of dwindling success. You see positive same store sales, albeit slightly though. They're currently in the process of opening two restaurants, one in Oklahoma, Muskogee, Oklahoma, and Collinsville, Illinois. The latter of the two will be the first Illinois location. And this was talked about earlier when I was talking about them operating throughout the Midwest and Southern United States. Really, the main differentiator for this chain in Colton Steakhouse is the price point. And I mentioned last week in last week's Food Focus that I actually visited. And a lot of their menu items are under the 10 to $11 price point, which is something that you wouldn't see on a Longhorn Steakhouse or even a Texas Roadhouse. But those are chains that attempt to differentiate on food. Colton's doesn't make that differentiation. Instead, they have a number of very inexpensive drink specials, and I would consider them to be basically in the same vein as a Montana Mike's or a Logan's Roadhouse. When you look at these two businesses, Colton's really does have their work cut out for them in trying to make up ground because Montana Mike's exists basically in the exact same footprint as Colton's, where Colton's is based in Arkansas, Montana Mike's is based in the Dallas area. They're actually part of Stockade Companies, so the owners of Sirloid Stockade as well as a couple of other restaurant concepts throughout the U.S. But Montana Mike's has a similar footprint, a similar price point, and a similar approach to service. Now, Colton's decor is a little bit more, I think, ostentatiously Western than Montana Mike's, but still, the basic premise is the same. And then you have Logan's Roadhouse, very similar to Logan's Roadhouse between these two restaurants. Logan's maybe with a slightly higher price point, but again, Logan's is pretty well extended. They have 135 total locations as compared to the 30 Colton's. It'll be 32 here in a month that exist in the U.S. So the big question is, can they expand quickly enough to fend off other chains? And then also, can they find differentiators that allow them to stand out from the traditional fast service restaurants such as Chili's and Applebee's that also sell similar products and steak and that type of thing? Now, for Colton's, it'll be interesting to see where they go after opening up these two locations. They're said to have as many as a half dozen locations in the pipeline. They prefer mid to smaller size markets. You look at some of the markets that they're opening up in, some markets of about 10 to 20,000. Some are slightly larger. So, again, very similar to what you would see in a Montana Mike's where they're in markets of 15 to 20,000. So they might already have the market cornered in many areas for expansion for Colton's. But Colton's is expanding north a little bit quicker. We mentioned their expansion to Collinsville, Illinois, which is another mid-sized market there. I'll be anxious to see if they continue to expand to northern states, and maybe that's where they see the runway to growth. They are a privately run chain. They are a chain that relies heavily on franchising. In fact, none of the Colton Steakhouse and Grill restaurants 
are corporate owned locations. They're all operated as franchises throughout. So they continue to look for franchisees, but they're not aggressively recruiting franchisees like we see with certain other businesses like the likes of Small Cakes, which we've talked about in the past, or the likes of certain other businesses that are seen in an expansion mode. So Colton's basically the reason for including them here in the podcast. They're a business to keep an eye on over the next couple of years because we've seen good percentage-wise expansion of their chain. Now let's see if they can continue to keep it up or if they run out of real estate, both literally and figuratively. And this really is a good company to keep an eye on because this might be a small bellwether for the overall industry. If you're talking about steakhouses in general, here you have a company that looks to expand quite rapidly. But are they going to be able to sustain that growth with their current business model? And their current business model is really aligned almost with that of a Texas Roadhouse. You look at their average entree price is about 12 to 13 dollars and their overall menu is almost a carbon copy of that of Longhorn Steakhouse. So really as far as the menu offerings, it doesn't really seem like they have a big differentiator, but again, it's that localized feel and potentially Trent, it's those markets that they're opening in that will give them the edge in the long run. We close out this edition of the Food Focus as we do every week on the Food Focus by each telling you an item that we tried that's new to the world of food or beverage and Layton we'll start with you. Yeah, so this actually draws from the Colton Steakhouse story in that one of their 10 favorites was the pork chop. So with the same type of protein, I tried the pulled pork California pizza chicken crispy thin frozen pizza. And that's a lot to really take in there. That's a mouthful. But overall, Trent, this caught my eye because this is a limited edition offering from California Pizza Kitchen. If you go to their website, they have a list of all their frozen pizzas. They actually have a different URL for the frozen side of their business, cpkfrozen.com, where you can check this limited edition offering out. I typically don't eat pulled pork, but this is an offering that is actually preservative-free within their crust, and they have no artificial flavors on top. So this is something that caught my eye because I try to be health-conscious, although one could say that a pizza overall is probably not going to have a low amount of fat content. But this was something that was very delicious. It had a little bit of spice to it, and it had a solid amount of meat on it as well. So this is something you see in the frozen pizza industry. You'll get a sausage pizza or something of that nature, but it really doesn't have a lot of meat content on there. They may just have a dozen or so pieces of very small meat and you leave feeling unsatisfied. But overall, Trent, this was a very good pizza and a very good buy. If you look at the price point, the MSRP is around $7, but it can vary in each individual store and by market between the $5 price point and between the $10 price point. If we look at the nutrition facts, I had mentioned the fat content being high because of course it does have cheese. So you're having a high saturated fat content per slice of pizza. A slice is about one third a pizza. So obviously it's an average size frozen pizza. 8 grams of total fat, 3.5 grams of those saturated fats, but 13 grams of protein. That's going to be derived from that pork and that cheese overall. You're saying that this is an animal byproduct. Sugars at 3. Total carbohydrates is 31, so it should give you enough fuel throughout the day, or at least if you're not consuming at nighttime. But an overall good buy. I advise you to check it out before the limited time offering goes away. Again, cpkkitchen.com. You can check out a variety of all their pizzas, not just their limited time offerings, but the ones you would see inside a Kroger or a Walmart. 
It's neat because we both ended up trying frozen pizzas this week without even knowing it. I actually tried an offering from Smart Flower Foods. I was intrigued because they've recently won distribution in the Rocky Mountain region for Whole Foods and also through Sprouts. I actually picked up the Smart Flower Foods for the first time at Kroger. It's a new offering at my neighborhood, Kroger. It's an Austin, Texas-based company, and I got their classic cheese pizza. Now, I should note that I added some vegetables on top, some mushrooms, some tomatoes, some onions, but I used the cheese pizza, and what sets Smart Flower Foods apart is that it is a gluten-free crust, but it is a gluten-free, multi-grain crust, and therefore it makes it an excellent source of fiber. It's also free of egg, soy, and rice. And the cheese is from cows, not treated with artificial growth hormone. And they also mentioned that there is no MSG or preservatives here. Now, I think this pizza for a gluten-free pizza, now, mind you, I don't have to eat gluten-free, but I was just intrigued enough to purchase this pizza. For a half pizza, it's about 320 calories. Now, the pizzas are not very big. They can't be bigger than maybe like seven or eight inches. They fit on a normal-sized dinner plate. I doubt a serving size would actually be a half a pizza. I went ahead and ate the entire pizza, which would set it at 620 calories, not counting the veggies I put on it, and 24 grams of fat, 24 grams of protein as well. And I have to say that, honestly, for a gluten-free product, the pizza crust baked up nice and crispy, but it wasn't overly chewy. I was very impressed at the quality of the Smart Flower Foods product in comparison to other gluten-free pizza products that are out there. Now, the price point was a little bit more expensive late than your product was. Uh, I actually got mine on special. It ran about $7, but I think the MSRP is usually 8 to $9, depending on the store you purchase it in. So again, that's the Smart Flower Foods Classic Cheese Pizza that I tried. Looking on their website, they have a number of other pizzas. I was only able to get the Classic Cheese at my location, but they have an uncured pepperoni pizza, as well as a garden margarita pizza and a chicken sausage pizza. So those all sound very good, and I look forward to trying other offerings from Smart Flower in the future. I'm sure the price point there, the MSRP, was a little bit higher than mine because of that gluten-free content within the crust. Those ingredients typically cost more. We talk about food input costs. Well, those ingredients are a little bit more expensive, which is why you go to a restaurant that serves something that's gluten-free and it tends to have a $1 or $2 upcharge, that type of thing. And their smart flour is actually made with a tapioca flour base, which is somewhat rare. You usually see a rice flour base. They use tapioca, sorghum, teff, and amaranth as their overall base rather than rice flour. And I think that's what gave it the higher quality. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast for Leighton. I'm Trent saying so long. Check us out on Retail Focus later this week when I hope my voice will be better. Also, check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus. So long until next time. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.